Good morning, it's Tuesday the 3rd of October and this is Govindraj Raj in transit and usually in Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day. Unemployment rate in the country drops to a one-year low in September. India's rice export ban draws World Trade Organization ire. Indian exporters are holding out. India swings between excess and scarcity on food produce. Are there lessons from the past? Google Chromebooks to be made in India by HP now. This is a core report with Govindraj Atiraj. Unemployment rate drops. The link between unpredictable monsoons and the agricultural economy has been reducing over the years. Another indicator of this was India's unemployment rate, which dropped to a one-year low in September as joblessness in rural areas fell despite weak monsoon rains. Overall joblessness rate slid to about 7.09% last month from 8.1% in August. Data from the Centre for Monitoring Indian Economy showed according to Business Standard. Now, that's the lowest reading since September last year, when rural employment had dropped to 6.2% from 7.1% in August while urban unemployment fell to 8.9% from 10% in the same period the year before. Urban joblessness also saw a dip ahead of the key festival season, that's Diwali, that's coming up, and the festival season overall, which has kicked off in India from the time of Onam. Employers usually gear up on hiring, especially in the gig and contract employment segment, and this, of course, as you know, and I mentioned earlier, is ahead of Diwali. Meanwhile, the stock markets and other markets were shut yesterday because of Gandhi Jayanti, so no real fresh news there. No major cues appeared overnight from international markets, apart from 10-year Treasury yields in the United States rising to the highest since 2007. Treasury 10-year yields now have risen more than 6 basis points to 4.64%. Money is quite simply rushing into US Treasuries and out from elsewhere. Speaking of rushing out, after sustained buying in the last six months, foreign portfolio investors have turned net sellers and pulled out over 14,767 crores from Indian equities in September. Thanks to dollar appreciation, a steady rise in the US bond yields I just spoke of, and a spike in crude oil prices, the business standard is reporting. Before the outflow, foreign portfolio investors bought Indian equities in the last six months and had brought in 174,000 crores during this period. We are, as you know, tracking oil prices quite closely for, among other things, the domino effect it might have. Meanwhile, Reuters is reporting that Asia's crude oil imports slipped for a second consecutive month in September as refinery maintenance trimmed demand and the impact of higher prices began to weigh in. Arrivals of about 24.9 million barrels per day in September is down from August's 25.2 million barrels per day said Reuters. Now, these figures obviously give you a sense on how crude oil flows are happening. Refinery is currently undertaking scheduled maintenance in the region. That's the interesting point. Our units at Reliance Industries, uh, 1.2 million barrel per day complex in Jamnagar, that's in Western India, and plants in Vietnam, South Korea, and Taiwan. Now, the rupee, which has been weak, appreciated on Friday by about 13 paise to close at 83 rupees 0.06 to a dollar. Now, there is no clear trend from this, of course, not at least at this point. Meanwhile, interestingly, as long as America continues to spend or buy, the global economy benefits or should benefit, at least in a manner of speaking. 
The Wall Street Journal says Americans are spending like there's no tomorrow, with concerts, trips and designer handbags taking priority over saving for a home or a rainy day. Interest rates are up, inflation remains high, pandemic savings have shrunk and the labour market is cooling. And yet, household spending, the primary driver of the nation's economic growth, that's the United States, remains robust. Americans spent 5.8% more in August than a year earlier, well outstripping the less than 4% inflation, the Wall Street Journal says. It also says that there is an important difference this time, which is that it's an experience economy boom this summer, or services rather than products. Delta Airlines, for example, is reporting a record revenue in the second quarter, and Ticketmaster has sold about 295 million event tickets in the first six months of 2023, up nearly 18% year over year. Some of this in the United States, elsewhere in the world, and maybe in India too, is a post-COVID effect, but some, as I've spoken to, have suggested that this is more permanent. One young 30-year-old New York-based marketing professional the Wall Street Journal spoke to said that he bought a $1,600 Taylor Swift era store ticket and then he spent $3,500 on a bachelor party trip to Ibiza in Spain. He and his fiancé also rent for $3,000 a month an apartment that would cost a million dollars to buy. Some commercial real estate news. Speaking of renting, though not in New York, but in Mumbai, for example, real estate is one area, commercial or residential, where there is a clear and mostly upward trend back home, more in residential, of course. In the commercial space, the net leasing of office space in the top seven cities in India has increased by 5% to about 10.3 million square feet in July to September. Despite global headwinds, real estate consulting agency JLL India said in a report quoted by Business Standard. Mumbai, however, saw a reduction in net leasing of office space to about 1.5 million square feet during the third quarter of this calendar year, down from 1.8 million square feet in July to September the previous year. However, in the first nine months of 23-24, the absorption of office space was about 14% lower to the same period compared to last year. Hyderabad has led with the highest market share of 26%. Hyderabad is a city that we are encountering increasingly in real estate as well, followed by about 23% in Bangalore and 16% in the Delhi National Capital Region. The United States and the WTO have brought up rice exports ban at a meeting. The United States last week called India's export ban on non-Basmati rice an unnecessary trade barrier while asking for its immediate withdrawal at the World Trade Organization or WTO Agricultural Committee meeting. India had earlier imposed a ban on non-Basmati rice exports on July 20th and followed that up with a ban on lower-priced Basmati rice as well. The move had shocked global rice markets and set off panic alarms, including amongst NRIs world over, who, like in India, use non-Basmati rice for daily consumption, as opposed to the more flavorful Basmati, which is used for special means like biryanis. India's non-Basmati rice exports are now down about 90% year-on-year in September, or just 10% as compared to last year, a New Delhi-based exporter told the Hindu business line. India has responded to the WTO charge by saying that the new ban was a regulation rather than a restriction, which was crucial for the food security of its 1.4 billion people, the Hindu business line reported. A Geneva-based trade official also told business line that India also pointed out at that WTO Agriculture Committee meeting on Wednesday that it granted exemptions from the export ban to those in need upon their government's requests. 
A group of WTO members led by the US said that India's export ban had had a detrimental impact on countries heavily reliant on imports, particularly during times of crisis, as India accounted for roughly 40% of global exports. India is now, by the way, supplying rice, that's non-Basmati rice, to countries like the UAE, Bhutan, Mauritius and Singapore on a country-to-country basis, which it said it would do a month ago. Now, more than two and a half months down, where do we stand on rice exports and what have been the takeaways so far on supply, demand and on prices? And how has Basmati rice, including the segments of it, been faring in this period, particularly in terms of demand? I spoke with Vijay Setia, former president of the All India Rice Exporters Federation and also chairman and managing director of Chaman Lal Setia Exports, makers of the well-known Maharani Basmati Rice brand. I began by asking him what the impact of this ban has been looking back. The first thing is that non-Basmati exports were happening on unrealistic prices. Because government of India was doing a welfare scheme, a biggest in the world, that they were supplying rice to 80 crore people in India. And that was free rice. And large quantity of that rice was getting pilferage, reverse into the system. It was reconditions for exports. It was reconditioned to supply to the FCI, which FCI made some system to check. But I think still that is not possible to 100% stop it. First, government of India noticed this thing that Indian rice is going at a, such a low price. They put 20% tax on our rice, non-Basmati exports. And government expectation was that now it is a fair price and export will little slow down. But nothing happened. Contrary to it, Indian exports of non-Basmati was higher by 5 to 7%. So then government came with the restriction that complete ban on non-Basmati rice this rice is required for our public. We have a large population. And this impact, how it came into the market. When the free rice was coming in the market, the rice was selling for 20 rupees. Whether it was going for reconditioning and exports or it was going reconditioning for FCA supplies by millers. Once government withdraw this scheme of free rice, suddenly the price of that quality of rice shoot up from 20 rupees to 30 rupees in Indian market. And people who have sold at a lower price come out of their deals. They started making hue and cry that 30% inflation came into rice market. That was a correction. I won't say this was inflation. It was a correction. And it was required. Maybe government noticed this thing that our scheme is misused. People are not getting the desired benefit out of that. And I think government of India did the right thing. They withdraw their scheme of redistribution. So, some people made this plea with their buyers that it's a forced layers, forced mayors, we cannot deliver. They went out of their deals. They renegotiated their deals. And after paying 20% duty, they started exports of price and it was happening again. Since, as I already told, that exports were still on a higher side, the government came with a ban on non-basmati rice, which FCI distributes at the price of 3,400 rupees per quintal. Some people misuse the procedure of basmati. In basmati, Apida is a custodian. They maintain a data. Before any export, you have to get permission from Apida by registering online. This is my order. At this price, I have to export my rice. Unfortunately, when the 20% duty came, some people misused Basmati 
they export non basmati in the name of basmati and save 20% tax naturally no government wants nonsense in its system so suddenly looking at basmati going at average 1050 usd and someone exporting rice at 359 i think to overcome the situation it should not be misused they made it 1200 minimum and they kept all the channels open they sent their teams to all the seven basmati producing states to meet the stakeholders to take their view to understand the scenario of basmati varieties so everywhere they got one feedback that this time basmati crop we have five dominant crops in basmati which are exported 1121 1401 usa and 1718 and lastly 1509 the area under 1509 has gone up by 40% so largest crop is going to be the 1509 farmers are very happy with this crop credited to government of india and icr they develop such a nice variety it is a short duration variety farmers income increases they get higher yield from this variety like 80000 1 lakh rupees for one acre worst to worst crop even then they are getting 70000 so it fluctuates between 70000 to 1 lakh as compared to non basmati where they get 55 or 50000 so farmers are happy so looking at this varieties presence and quantity but only thing is the mouth feel of this variety is slightly different from the 1 to 1 which is main variety which came prior to all these varieties in the market so there are buyers for 1509 there are buyers for 121 but in last 5 years the price tables have already fixed if 1121 is selling for 1200 usd and this rice may be selling for 900 850 like that so this season looking at the huge and such a quantity of there the trade suggested the government instead of 1200 usd you fix the minimum price control for registration with the apida so you improve your system you improve your control by putting 850 a minimum condition so apida will be registering basmati rice with a minimum price tag of 850 right so this of course has to be notified am i right you see minister has given instructions very clearly that do it and uh, all stakeholders were present in that meeting the government concern is at 850 is people will mix the rice non basmati with, with the basmati and export which is not possible because non basmati is selling at 450 and whosoever is buying and 1509's price will be around 850 to 875 if anybody will be doing blending that means the calculation will bring down the price below 850 second you will lose your buyer because it is a competitive world if one is doing some mixing other will tell him you are cheated so i think nobody is in a position to mix non basmati varieties into basmati right so if i can ask you a broader question mr setia so overall rice exports now has it achieved the outcome that we wanted to achieve so the outcome that we wanted was to obviously keep domestic prices low i think policy we are moving in a correct direction by putting controls and reviewing it as we are told government has a keen eye on non basmati parboiled rice exports 
if they are going at a lower price, government will intervene because we need rice at a lower price in Indian market. For Basmati, though they have assured that they will make MEP like 850, but they want us to perform better. And industry is already averaged. Realization is 1050. So we hope after some time of a price dip, there will be a correction. In the initial stage, pressure of uh, buying so much material of, um, it's an open trade, it is not a government-supported basmati, it is to be purchased by Miller. And most of the paddy is harvested by combined harvesters with a high moisture. So handling becomes difficult for the industry, we need that much drying capacity and all. So looking at all these things, I think there can be a temporary dip in the prices and again prices will go up. And uh, for 1509, I think uh, this price level 850 is correct. At this price, I think good quality rice will be exported. Right, Mr. Setia. Thank you so much for joining me. On agricultural policy. Now, moving on from cereals, which is rice, to other food produce, including fruits and vegetables. In just six weeks, we have gone from record prices for tomatoes, around 300 rupees per kilo and more in some parts of the country, to 10 rupees per kilo, to the point that farmers were even destroying the crop. The high tomato prices played havoc with India's food inflation numbers and inflation numbers overall, which are of course now moderating. But we've gone from scarcity to excess very quickly. Elsewhere, in the case of onions, a 40% export duty aimed at increasing domestic supply has led to farmers' protests and strikes. So between rice, which we just spoke of, and various other agri-commodities that make up staple foods in India, policy-making obviously has a critical role in price stability. The government has moved fast and sometimes too fast in some areas and maybe not sufficiently in others. The larger question, of course, is that with weather patterns changing, consumption trends shifting, Policy on prices and tariffs for both imports and exports has to be responsive but also moderated. Easier said. So what are the lessons from the past in this regard and what can we learn from India's own swinging patterns of excess and scarce supply dynamics? And are there any templates, if any, so to speak? To get a wider perspective, I reached out to Siraj Hussain, former Agriculture Secretary to the Government of India and frequent columnist on agricultural and food production issues and began by asking him, why we were swinging so wildly and so suddenly between excess and scarcity, as we saw in the case of tomatoes. So, first of all, let me begin by giving a background. I was still in the Ministry of Agriculture when the National Horticulture Mission was launched in 2005. And since then, the production of both fruits and vegetables has more than doubled. So, that is a success story of Indian agriculture. And the scientific practices which have come in the production of fruits and vegetables and the expansion to newer areas. So these are the developments which are contributing to production exceeding demand at certain point of time. Now, it is true that quite often the prices go very high and sometimes the prices fall very low. And as I have written, for certain fruits and vegetables, there are scientific techniques for better storage, preservation, etc. For example, peas. You know, when we were children, peas were not available around the year. Now you get frozen peas around the year. Apples, for example. You know, this CA technology has now made apples available almost around the year for 9-10 months a year earlier. Domestic apples would not be available beyond March. 
so for many of the fruits and vegetables technology for storage is not available onion is one of them onion is slightly better off than tomatoes so it cannot be stored so i think this fluctuation is a result of the failure to develop adequate technology for storing it for longer period of time and therefore when the crop comes to the market there is glut like situation and then no one knows what to do and i think the government's options are limited okay so if you are saying that these are recurring trends then and therefore we are driven more by supply trends rather than any, any effort to control it at the demand side what could we do at this point i mean for example could the same thing happen next year yes same thing is very likely to happen next year also what happens is that the processing of several of these commodities is at a very low scale and therefore the indian taste is for fresh fruits and vegetables so we would like to eat fresh tomatoes rather than paste many people keep arguing that you know government should be promoting paste and processed tomato and things but then processing brings its own problems you know sugar is added preservatives are added indians don't like it i think one of the good solutions given from time to time is better data so if better data is available how much crop is likely to come at what point of time then i think the industry trade businesses supply chains can also prepare better i think non availability of data is a big issue and after 2018 for example the horticulture statistics of india has not been published it is not available on the website of national horticulture board so when you say data where exactly for example let's say in the case of onion or tomato what is the data point that could have helped or will help in future to prevent this kind of glut no from which area we should expect crop to come in which month so this is the kind of granular data which is needed and i was expecting that with so much of money flowing into newer businesses many new entrepreneurs would be able to generate this data but i don't think we have succeeded there and as a result there is paucity of data which results in glut like situations at many points of time and then no one knows how to tackle it so for example if it was known to corporates fpos and bigger players that at certain such location there is going to be a glut then i think they can better prepare they can procure i must say that the state governments have done very little to check food inflation and hardly two or three states have set up their own price stabilization funds even though the government gives up 50% grant for that so state governments are totally hands off if they were also tuned in for example they would buy in the times of glut they would okay. store it at least for two weeks or so even tomatoes can be stored and then they would release it slowly it is not easy but at least at a small scale it should be tried but you're saying that this data was being published earlier until 2018 and is not being published now no till 2018 we have horticulture statistics of india which gives annual production estimate area etc at the state level what i am looking for now Same to time. check these uh, spikes and bottoming out is more granular data month wise production of tomato onion potato etc so you do not see similar kind of fluctuation in potato for example because potato is stored in cold storages and therefore the technology provides a solution for longer storage similar thing is not available for onion and almost nothing no technology is available for tomato 
Right. Okay. So that I'm assuming is a capital expenditure challenge. And I guess that's also a separate discussion. Let me come back to another point, which is the tariff response, if one may call it that. So in the case of onion, there's a 40% export duty that's being imposed because of which farmers are protesting. Now, the export duty is a different kind of tool. So is that something that's also consistent with the past? Actually, there is something very awkward there. When the farm laws brought in through an ordinance, in May or June 2020, you know, within a month, the government banned the export of onion. So while Essential Commodities Act was being amended to provide for no action by the government unless the prices of perishables rose by at least 100% over the last one year or five years, even then the government brought it. So you are very correct. There is no predictability of when the government action will come. And as a result of that, the trade finds it very difficult and farmers are up in arms from time to time. So there should be some mechanism which I'm sure Dr. Ramesh Chand in Niti Aayog and his colleagues can develop that government action will be triggered only when the prices rise to a certain level. And if the prices do not go to that level, then government action will not be triggered. This government action is not only in form of stock limits but also in the form of MEP, export ban, restriction on in movement from one state to another, for example, and so on. Right. And finally, we are in October now. So how does the rest of this calendar year look when it comes to prices? I mean, are we likely to see more stability, again, going by past trends? You see, in case of fruits and vegetables, this is a better season. When winters come, the production generally improves. The supply bottlenecks due to rains, floods, etc., not uh, very predominant. And as a result of that, there is better availability of fruits and vegetables in this period. But that is not true for pulses, for example. So inflation will continue in pulses. Inflation is likely to continue in wheat unless the government allows import and lowers duty. And there is one more thing about which I would like to mention that the government has not come out with the first advance estimate of food grain production. Normally, it is issued in September. Okay. Right. And that figure is going to tell us what? It will tell us how much production of rice and pulses, etc. is expected in this Kharif. Okay. You know, which will start arriving in the market from today. From 1st of October, the official Kharif marketing season starts. In fact, paddy is already arriving in some states. Right. Mr. Hussain, thank you so much for joining me. HP or Hewlett Packard will make Google Chromebook laptops in India from this week, Alphabet and Google CEO Sundar Pichai said on Twitter yesterday. We are partnering with HP to manufacture Chromebooks in India. These are the first Chromebooks to be made in India and will make it easier for Indian students to have access to affordable and secure computing, he said. Chromebook has had some success in the United States in the education segment, possibly leading to a similar focus here. Education in general has been a specific target segment for computer makers, laptop makers, and even chip makers like Intel, who have in the past targeted educational institutions, universities, and colleges. Chromebooks cost less than notebooks with proprietary operating systems contributing to it. Computer industry research firm IDC had estimated, according to reports, that just over 8% of Chromebook sales in 2022 were for commercial purposes compared to 72% for education and the remaining 20% for consumer use. IDC expects the business part of this equation to keep growing, but only slowly. Announcement came last week about the Chromebook manufacturer in India, followed yesterday by Sundar Pichai's statement. 
The Chromebook devices will be manufactured at the Flex facility near Chennai, where HP has been producing a range of laptops and desktops since August 2020, it said in a statement reported by several news agencies. According to the statement, Chromebook, which comes with Google's Chrome OS or operating system, are the leading devices in K-12 education, helping over 50 million students and teachers around the world. HP has been expanding its manufacturing operations in India since 2020, and from December 21, it began making a wide range of laptops in India, including HP Elite Books, HP Pro Books, and HP G8 Series Notebooks. Several manufacturers make Google Chromebooks globally. They include Lenovo, Dell, Acer, and Asus. And finally, the Nobel Prize for Medicine. Perhaps it was logical that the scientists at the front lines of the battle against COVID would get a Nobel Prize. But it's good news to know that they have finally and in fact got it. The Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine has been awarded to a pair of scientists who developed the technology that led to the mRNA COVID vaccine. Professors Kathleen Carrico and Drew Weissman will share the prize. The technology was experimental before the pandemic but has now been given to millions of people around the world to protect them against serious COVID-19. The same mRNA technology is being now researched for other diseases, including cancer, BBC News is reporting. The Nobel Prize Committee said that the laureates contributed to the unprecedented rate of vaccine development during one of the greatest threats to human health in modern times. Both scientists were told they had won by telephone yesterday morning and were said to be overwhelmed. Traditional vaccine technology has been based on dead or weakened versions of the original virus or bacterium or by using fragments of the infectious agent. In contrast, the messenger ribonucleic acid or mRNA vaccines use a completely different approach. During the COVID vaccine, the Moderna and the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines were both based on the mRNA technology. Professor Kariko and Professor Weissman met in the early 1990s when they were working at the University of Pennsylvania in the United States when their interest in mRNA was seen as a scientific backwater, says the BBC. Katalin Kariko is now a professor at the Zeged University in Hungary and Drew Weissman is still working as a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, that's it from me for today. I hope you had a long, good weekend and are rested and ready for the rest of the week. Do log on to www.thecore.in for our in-depth reporting and articles. Do subscribe to our newsletter as well. And do, of course, listen into our podcast and send us your feedback at govindraj at thecore.in. Have a great day. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.